0: All right. Hello, everybody. I'm Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies, and I do a lot of work in the project on criminal justice, and welcome to the panel on the defendant in court. This is a Similar to one in terms of talking about with practitioners, judges, uh, academics about uh, what's going on to defendants in court, uh, which is often not very good, but we can get into that conversation. The bios for the speakers, the more complete ones are in your packet. i am just briefly introduce here, starting on my left, is Judge Jed S. Rakoff, senior United States District Judge for the United States District Court of Southern Southern District of New York and adjunct professor at Columbia Law School. He's co-authored five books, written more than 140 published articles, and delivered over 600 speeches. Um, Here we have Scott H. Greenfield. He's a criminal defense attorney in New York who is a blogger at simplejustice.us. And on the far end, we have Suja A. Thomas. She's the peer and Sarah Peterson professor of law at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana and the author of, well, you've had two books. You had a book last year, and you have a new book. The one that's last year is called The Missing American Jury, uh, which I highly, highly suggest. And she has one coming out this year uh, called unequal how America's courts undermine discrimination law from Oxford. So welcome to the panel. We are going to just start off with a question that had been mentioned previously in different uh, incarnations, but what happened to the jury? Uh, I don't know if we just could start with Suja and then weigh in here. What, what happened to the American jury trial?
1: Yeah, so uh, right now, um, the juries decide very few cases in the United States. Uh, on the criminal front, they decide uh, about 1% to 4% of um, criminal cases filed in federal and state court. Uh, and. Um, Uh, A lot of this has to do on the criminal side with plea bargaining. Plea bargaining, as was mentioned earlier, occurs in almost every every case. And so why is that the case? Um, Well, a lot of authority has just shifted um, from juries to other parts of government, um, the executive, the legislature, the judiciary, and the states. um, and um, I'll just briefly say that one of the things that I think has happened um, as to why that's the case is that the Supreme Court itself hasn't protected the jury's authority. It actually has um, often said yes to jury authority and then said no to jury authority on the exact same issue. And so initially with respect to plea bargaining, it was you know, relatively sort of um, cautious about it, um, and then over time, just 20 years really, um, it became much more favorable to it. So I think that's a theme um, that we have with the, um, with the jury in the United States.
2: Well, I think that uh, the jury trial requires the trial, and I think if we're not going to have uh, an opportunity to try a case without paying an exorbitant uh, penalty for losing, you've got to consider the calculus. Uh, As a defense lawyer, you ask yourself two questions on behalf of your client. What are the chances I can win? How bad is it going to be if I don't? And this is going to guide you. It's going to guide your advice to your client. It's going to tell you whether or not you want to put your life in the hands of 12 people you don't know. Uh, in a trial which is largely, and I I don't mean to steal the trope, but a kabuki dance because you pretty much know how trials are going to lay out. Do they always come out that way? No. But the question is, if somebody offers you an opportunity to get out of this with 121 months versus life with cancer, you've got to seriously consider the 121 months.
0: a function we're talking about juries, and which is what Sutra's book focuses on. But you mentioned just trials, uh, which you could have in front of a judge or a jury. Is there something particularly good about juries uh, that where we're just more talking about actually getting a day in court, whether it's a judge as a fact finder, or maybe Judge Rakoff wants to weigh in here on what he thinks the relative competencies are of a jury versus a judge.
3: Well, I think that. Um, uh, Jurors as a whole are less biased than judges. Uh, most judges were former prosecutors or had no prior uh, criminal experience. Uh, very few defense lawyers become uh, judges. And um, therefore, um, I think most judges are predisposed uh, to find defendants guilty. Um, the uh, In a jury system, you have the voice of the community. I... Uh, talk to jurors after every trial, and I've always been very impressed um, with uh, how seriously they took their uh, uh, role, how much weight they gave to uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, And uh, another factor in the jury uh, process is that because you have 12 people and they have to be unanimous in order uh, to reach a verdict, Um, you will have a lot of different views that will uh, sort of balance out because the only way you can get unanimity is by communicating with each other and the language you have to use if you're going to convince someone else uh, of your point of view is the voice of reason. Um, So I think the the jury system is actually a wonderful thing. I'll add one just last uh, item. It's one of the very few remaining aspects where everyday citizens get to play an important role in what happens in their community. Um, And so it is, to my mind, a great shame that uh, trials generally, and jury trials in particular,
0: are largely uh, disappearing. Do you have any comments, Scott, about the difference between trying a case to a jury or a judge?
2: My experience is very much like Judge Rakoff's. When I talk to them after a a trial, I find them extremely sincere, very serious, and very well-intended. And I believe they absolutely mean to do their best. Um, the problem is not that jurors are somehow not up to the task or, or, or uh, prejudice so much as very little of what they see uh, leaves them a whole lot of choice. And uh, you know, unlike most people take a look at cases and think, you know, well, geez, there's DNA, there's junk forensic science, there's uh, false confessions. Um, most of these things don't exist in the pedestrian criminal conspiracy case. Uh, the case is basically a bunch of agents who all swear that each other's telling the truth and they're wonderful human beings. <laughs> and on the flip side, you've got uh, whoever on the defense is, is, hasn't become a cooperator is sitting there with his 32 priors, uh, can't take the stand because he'll spend, the, the AUSA will spend a week ripping him to shreds <laughs> and can barely speak to a, a group of nice uh, Southern District from Westchester jurors to begin with. So what's the jury to do? What do you expect out of a jury when you don't give them any fodder to, to rule any other way than for the government.
1: Yeah, let me just add a, a couple of things to what's already been said. Um, Um, I think um, there are a lot of statistics that show um, that judges and juries generally agree. Um, In over 70% of cases, they generally agree. So we we know that. Um, We also know that judges and juries have some of the same problems. Um, They have trouble ignoring inadmissible evidence. They tend to go towards irrelevant figures. So there's some of the same sort of things that judges and juries have. Um, but at the same time, um, judges and juries um, don't have the same um, demographics for the most part. Um, the federal judiciary as well as the state judiciary is um, uh, not as diverse as the general population. The jury also is not um, perfectly representative of the general population, but the jury is more representative of the general population. And then just um, two other things is that um, if we think about bias, as Judge Ravecoff talked about, um, we can also think about the fact that, you know, juries are actually screened by other people. And you know, judges actually screen themselves for their own bias. And there's actually this case that came out of the Supreme Court um, about, um, about a year ago or so. And there was a prosecutor who recommended the death penalty in the case. Um, and then he became the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. And he was asked to recuse himself um, when he was asked the question whether to reinstate the death penalty. <coughs> And all of us can look at that and say, of course, he would recuse himself, but he did it. And I think we have trouble seeing our own bias. And I think that's another reason why it's good that in the jury system we actually have others screening the bias. And then one final thing is that, you know, jurors um, don't have the same incentives um, that judges can have. Um, there's the possibility of promotion in the federal system. You know, uh, you know, if you're not on the Supreme Court. There's re-election um, in um, some of the state systems, um, and so I think um, you know the founders didn't think the jury was perfect, um, but they thought it was the best decision maker for the types of issues it was chosen for.
0: It's inter- uh, when, you, when you talk about the founding view of the jury and what, what was what was the average case like in say 1800? Did was it did you plea bargain? in 1800. No, no. Was it it even illegal? I mean, was was there a legal reason or it was just not done?
1: Yeah, so people could plead guilty, but it happened uh, rarely. And the reason it happened rarely is you would receive the same outcome if you pled guilty versus if you um, actually um, were convicted before a jury. So virtually everyone insisted on taking uh, taking the jury. And you had um, not just 12 people unanimously standing in the way, but you had Twelve on the grand jury had to say yes to the case, plus another twelve. So right now, um, we have one person, basically the prosecutor, saying yes, um, and then we have. And back then, we had twenty-four people saying um, something about whether a crime had been committed.
0: Now, I, I, as is the Cato Institute, um, I have to ask about uh, jury nullification uh, in this regard, which I think is an important role of the jury. If if you had more trials, uh, especially, you could imagine. A jury pulled together just you know, prosecuting a minor possession case. And if it's a jury of your peers, they're just like, look, we don't really think this should be a crime. And from some of the stuff, I think Akilah Maher mentions that the jury, if you think of the three parts of government, executive, judiciary, legislative, you have a populist part in the House of Representatives. Uh, and you have an p- elected president and, and a popular elected president. And the jury is the kind of House of Representatives of the judiciary, and they can also decide that they don't want to convict someone, even if they're guilty. Is, is that an original point of the jury? And are we missing something by not using it?
1: Yeah, that, it definitely was an original point of the jury. Um, you know, the, the jury was supposed to be checking uh, the government, and there's sort of a. Um, a kind of a case that always is mentioned, the, the Zenger case. And um, in that case, uh, two grand juries refused to indict um, Zenger for um, uh, publishing um, uh, information that was critical to the English government. Uh, and then, you know, eventually they a jury refused to convict Zenger. And, um, you know, that early on, um, it was the case that the jury was a check on the government, including the check on whether the law was correct or whether a prosecution was happening uh, incorrectly. So I think it's a really important check that we have in our government.
3: Well, I, I don't think it, it actually exists in reality. In um, I've, As a judge, I guess I've had several hundred jury trials, and before that, as a, as a first a prosecutor and then a defense counsel, I had Uh, at least 100, and uh, I've never seen a case of jury nullification in the way that you're uh, postulating it. Uh, You do see many cases where the jury will uh, acquit a very low-level person because they have sympathy for that person, and they will tell you if you talk to them afterwards, well, we knew that technically he or she was guilty, but, you know, he's a schnook. And uh, uh, but but uh, but that's different from what you're talking about, uh, where they're saying that we don't agree with the law in this area. Uh, I've never seen that.
2: Do you have any comments on jury nullification? I got to tell you, I've never seen it either. I mean, I, I know stories of it. But, but it's, it's I've never had the experience.
1: Let me actually, so there's a couple of situations involving grand juries that have been in the news where there have been grand juries that have said no, and whether or not it's nullification or not, it's, you know, involving Facebook and postings on Facebook, a, a rapper posting um, lyrics. Um, um, I think it was a um, situation um, involving a bomb, and then another one where um, a younger person... Um, posted emojis and, you know, guns, uh, it was guns pointing at um, police. Uh, And in both of those situations, the grand jury um, said no to those. Um, And so we at least see some of, potentially some of this in the grand jury context.
2: I think we're talking here about two different issues. One is the vagaries of law that don't apply, and a jury, a grand jury that says, no, we're not going to extend the law to emojis. Uh, you can't kill anybody with a gun emoji, and that's how it goes. Um, I don't see how, how that reflects a nullification. Well, it's not an indictment.
3: And, and even in the case of the grand jury, it's the real exception. There's a uh, the former chief judge of uh, New York State's highest court famously said a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich.
0: I have a question. And
3: then he was. Yeah, he was. He he was then (laughs) indicted. Subsequently, he he, he was then indicted by the grand jury. uh, uh, But uh, the the uh, uh, again, I think it's probably a little more common in the case of the grand jury, but still extremely rare. Uh, Uh, You know,
2: you want to talk about an instance of nullification? Consider uh, some of the police shootings that have ended up in acquittal, where you've got videotapes of a guy, a cop shooting a guy in the back, if you're, is that nullification? Could very well be. Is that really what you want? Is that what you were aiming for? I don't know that that's, I mean, it's out there, it could be a nullification issue, uh, but this probably isn't what advocates of nullification were really uh, happy uh, to see. Let's talk a little bit about that, because the bargaining, of course, mostly got us to this
0: position of 97% are pled out. So first, starting with Scott, on your – so you're a defense attorney. Someone calls you and says, hey, I have three kilos of Coke in my car. What does that come That's usually not what they say. That's usually that. not yeah, – I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I'm being framed or whatever. Um, and so you start, what is your process? Because a lot of people just don't even know behind the veil at the point when you start talking to prosecutors. And then when does the plea come in and what is the thought process going on there?
2: Well, there's a lot that goes on between the time of an arrest and arraignment and the time at which you enter into plea agreement. You're going to go through Rule 16 discovery. You're going to go through your own investigation. You're going to go through your own experts if that's available to you. So you can go back to your client and tell them, this is what you're looking at. This is what your defense can be. This is what we have to offer. This is what the guidelines will do, which which is a whole different issue. Um, And then this is my view of how this all weighs out. And you get to decide whether or not you want to fight this or you want to not fight this. And you know it's it's a brutal process in the sense of, you know, I'm not there to tell anybody if they want to tell me they're innocent, I believe them. Let's go to trial. I love trial. Criminal defense lawyers love to try cases, but we don't like to hurt our clients. So, from your perspective as a judge,
0: where you see pleas, or you have to have the defendant allocute and everything, but. You don't see that before the judge doesn't see the plea negotiations.
3: Yeah, so much. And, and one of the real problems with the plea bargaining system is it's done in secret. Um, and you only, as a judge, see the uh, final result. So, in the federal system, the prosecutors are required in the indictment to charge the most serious crimes that they feel they can prove. And those crimes will typically co- carry huge penalties. So the defense counsel then meets with the government, and uh, the government will often say, um, you know, we'll offer you a plea bargain to something that is uh, much reduced from what the indictment uh, uh, says and therefore carries a much uh, lower penalty, Um, but you need to give us an answer quickly because what's in it for us is uh, that we can move on to another part of the case or to a wholly different case. We're saving resources, and saving resources is really the origin of the plea bargaining uh, system. So um, the, uh, you talk to your client, and um, at least in my experience, uh, there were often uh, clients who initially told uh, me that they were innocent, who would now said, well, maybe I'm a little guilty, Um, and at least I can uh, allocute. And then um, you and the prosecutor will typically work out the exact words of the allocution. So at the critical stage where the judge says to the defendant, now tell me in your own words what it is that you did that makes you guilty of this crime. The typical defendant will pick up a piece of paper, which has been carefully worked out, and will say just enough, to allocate to the crime. His lawyer will like it to be minimal because he's worried about other things that could come back to haunt the client. The prosecutor uh, wants to be sure that it at least meets the essential elements and he doesn't care if it doesn't have anything else. And the one person who has no basis for determining whether this is the truth, whether it's (laughs) half the truth, whether it's totally contrary to the truth is the judge. Um, it's like a scripted play, you're so just watching. You Exactly. Yeah. And occasionally, um, I will throw out an allocution because uh, I then put questions to the uh, defendant, and the defendant, in the end, uh, was not able uh, to honestly allocate to what was being um, said. Uh, and at that point, both the prosecutor and the defense counsel are quite upset. The prosecutor is upset because he thought he'd cut a deal. The defense counsel is upset because he thinks that, guilty or innocent, this is still the best deal his client can get, and if he goes to trial, the risk is too great. So he doesn't want the client to go to trial for the client's benefit. So it's a very... mm, the unjust situation.
2: Well, we, we have to deal with them after that allocution is blown. When the guy, we they, the marshal's taken back in the, <laughs> in the holding cell, and he goes, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> and mm-hmm. you say, you know, remember how we told you you got to kind of admit to the judge that you did it? Yeah. Well, that doesn't mean I'm innocent, but my lawyer said I had to say I, I had the 27 kilos, you know. And he says, so what do we do now? And that's the worst question. Because well, so the answer is I go back to my office and he goes back to jail. Um, so to put some some statistics on this, um,
3: the Innocence Project has exonerated about 350 people of very serious crimes, murder and uh, rape mostly. And of those, 10% who were later shown to, by DNA to be absolutely innocent, totally in, factually innocent, pled guilty. Uh, uh, Total lies uh, because they faced a death penalty or life imprisonment, and this was a way to cut their risk. Uh, they frequently are, as was pointed out, uh, people with criminal records. They don't have any real faith in the system. Uh, they have a cynical view of the system, and for them, this is just
0: uh, a a risk evaluation. For the guideline, well, you mentioned the guidelines uh, in the in being a big part of this. And Suta, you write about it in the book. What 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 did the sentencing guidelines do to the, the whole plea bargaining system?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't write a lot about the sentencing guidelines. I I, I mention the sentencing guidelines as a factor to. Um, the, the growth, the plea bargaining and mandatory minimums as a, as a factor. Um, you know, now that the sentencing guidelines in the federal courts have become advisory, there's, um, you know, Have we less... seen any
0: change in that? Or in...
2: I, I, I think possibly one of the worst things that ever happened in the history of federal courts was Mr. Retta. And I will never forgive the Supreme Court for taking, what was it, 16 years... To, to say in Booker, oops, only kidding, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're, we're now... Mistretta upheld
3: with the original decision upholding the guidelines. Yes, yeah. and then, and it's, then it's, now they have to be discretionary. Yeah. So
2: Mistretta is now going to be 30 years old in, in 2019. And what you have is a set of guidelines that they claimed were empirical, but as Judge Bennett and Judge Rakoff have pointed out, um, magically became empirical after Len Bias died and after Enron uh, happened, and suddenly they doubled empirically overnight, and
0: uh, and and this all, all created is, in a lab. They yeah, I experiment don't understand empiricism,
2: and, obviously, um, but the point is that this became a normal where guys who would get uh, a year suddenly were getting sixty months. Guys who would get five years are now getting one hundred and twenty-one months. Um, We now have something that I never would have thought in the 80s was humanly possible, which is we've got a a core of federal judges who have never existed, the the younger federal judges have never existed without the guidelines. And they don't know that there was once a time in federal court that state street crime never sullied their halls, and that uh, people didn't always get life plus cancer in federal court. And this is, they've grown up on this in the U.S. Attorney's Office, in in their uh, uh, other functions, and they've come to believe that normal is prison forever. So now Booker comes along, says, you know, we're only kidding about those guideline thingies. But the numbers are still being used, and the idea of what's a worthy sentence for uh, a drug crime, um, which years ago, you know, five years used to be like a long time to go to prison. And now people think five years is like some gift for kids. Suddenly, if it's not 30 years, you know, like they're not going to get the message. <laughs> and this is this is what is now an accepted belief in the federal courts.
3: The judge? So I th- I think that's right, but I, I, I would go a step further. The, the The worst of all are the mandatory minimums because then the judge has no discretion. Um, The the guidelines were equally bad when they were uh, mandatory, um, and they are um, really a a trick. They they purport to be empirical. They purport to be uh, quasi-scientific, but if you actually look into it, they're just made up out of whole cloth, uh, and they, they bear very little relationship to, to anything. Because the guidelines are arithmetic, uh, what becomes the most important factor is something that can be measured arithmetically. So in drug cases, it's the weight of the drugs. Usually about 70% of the guideline calculation is the weight of the drugs. In white-collar cases, it's the amount of the loss, Uh, because that's something else that can be, to some extent, at least measured. Uh, And again, that is 60 to 70 percent of the calculation, uh, as if that were the whole question of sentencing. I mean, this just uh, completely disregards uh, uh, a dozen factors that any human being would want to take account of in sentencing, like the nature of the human being before you. Um, So uh, the guidelines... When they were made manda- when they were made discretionary, um, began to loosen up a little bit—not the guidelines themselves, but the judges' use of them. But there are two ways in which they continue to play a major role. The first, which was uh, very accurately just mentioned, was there are many judges who know nothing else, so they—they they don't know what it was like to have to the very hard job of having to figure out a sentence on your own as a judge uh, rather than to look to some arithmetic formula. Um, But secondly, the guidelines, which have been ratcheted up hugely over the last 20, 30 years, um, will get you a very high sentence. So even if you're a sympathetic judge and you think this particular guy doesn't deserve something like that, a judge is gonna to say to himself, well, the, the guidelines say 30 years, I'm gonna give him a break, I will give him 25 years. They will almost never say, and I'll give him 10 years because that's what I think he deserves. They, but what the judge will say to himself, well, gee, the guidelines are 30 years. They are supposed to prevent disparities among judges. I can deviate a little bit, but I can't deviate to what I really deep in my heart think is the right sentence. Uh, because that would undercut the whole uh, remaining purpose of the guidelines. So um, you see judges now uh, something like, oh, 40% or so now do give so-called non-guideline sentences, which is way up from where it was right after Booker. But when you actually look at was that a 50%? Change from the guideline? No, it was a five percent change from the guideline, so the guidelines
0: still are operating. And do you have anything, anything to add on this? Or, or we, we,
1: we can, if I just to kind of just comment on the plea bargaining aspect of this. Obviously, all of this then drives plea bargaining, and sure. um, right? And um, um, one of the things that um, I actually learned very recently um, is that in some countries they actually have limits as to the differences. Um, between what's um, the sentence at the plea stage versus what's the sentence if you're convicted um, before a jury. And so in England, um, you know, it can only be a third of a difference um, uh, and in in England and Wales. And so um, if we're going to actually reform the system, I think that that's one of the things that we can do um, to try to push towards um, more jury trials.
0: It, and so if, if we just made them disappear, mandatory minimums and guidelines disappear tomorrow, you say judges will still follow them to some extent, but would that radically change the plea bargaining? I mean, would it just would it just overnight flip and the prosecutors will suddenly have to do more jury trials and they can't hold the same thing over them? Or are we going to take
2: more? I don't think it's, it's that easy a, a calculus at this point. Like, as Judge Rakoff said, you know, judges no longer see that I'm going to sentence a person to the number I feel is appropriate, but the guidelines estimation of, you know, 10, 20, 30 years has become the new normal of what it takes to sentence someone. Um, So on the end of the calculus of of the cost of a trial, uh, it's going to have to come down on its own at some point or... Nobody's going to try a case. Well, that's the question. Yeah, well, we have the resources.
3: The, the to... statistics are that uh, before the guidelines uh, came in, uh, even though there was already beginning to be some mandatory minimums, uh, still 15 to 20 percent of all federal cases went to trial. And I think it was about the same for the states, though the data there is, is a little harder to, to, to gather. After the guidelines came in, you saw immediately a drop in uh, jury, in trials, mostly jury trials, uh, down to the present less than 3%. Uh, So I think there's no question of the cause and effect relationship. If you did away not only with mandatory minimums, but also with the guidelines, I think you would see a gradual return to more jury trials. It wouldn't be immediate because there are other things going on. For example, um, there are many fewer uh, lawyers who know how to try a jury trial. Um, And so that would have to be um, recaptured, so to speak. Uh, But I think it would over time.
2: uh, It's going to be a lost art, judges who who don't preside over enough trials. From the defense side, um, we, we the you are going to be like Luke Skywalker to teach everyone well, the, no, the but actual
0: they, ways of the t- jury trial. We used
2: to throw it. have CLEs about cross-examination, about how to, how to cross the snitch and how to introduce evidence. And half the CLEs today are either how to get negotiate your plea agreement or how to market yourself on the Internet. Um, you hold a, hold a, a CLE about uh, how to try a case, and nobody shows because they don't do that. Uh, and pretty soon, us old guys are going to be dead, <laughs> and uh, who's going to be there uh, for the young guys who talk but don't try? I remember the days of trials. Yeah, so, <laughs> so
3: yeah, yeah, if, I hate if, to sound that. <laughs> if if a prosecutor were here, um, he would. There are two defenses that are typically given Those are for next both, questions for both <laughs> mandatory minimums and for uh, the guidelines. Um, And the first is that uh, they encourage cooperation. Um, The American uh, uh, criminal justice system is very heavily dependent on uh, getting people to cooperate and thereby getting higher level people. And um, uh, I think uh, that uh, um, that's historically proven reasonably uh appropriate. It has its own dangers and perjury and things like that. Um, but I once had a discussion with a Russian judge, uh, and I, uh, uh, she was saying, how can you uh, use cooperators? Uh, you're giving a reduced sentence to someone who is admittedly a bad guy. Um, uh, you're encouraging that person to point fingers, which may uh, encourage perjury and so forth. Um, And I said, well, how else do you go about uh, getting people at the high level in in complex cases? Uh, And she said, oh, easy, unlimited (laughs) wiretapping. So you pick your poison, so to speak. Uh, So, um, but before there were any mandatory minimums, before there were any uh, uh, guidelines, there was still substantial cooperation. So I'm not convinced that it makes that big a difference that the system couldn't still um, uh, find ways to encourage cooperators. And basically, the way you encourage cooperators is by saying, We will tell the judge about your cooperation, and we're fairly confident that he or she will give a reduced sentence. And that would be true whether there were guidelines or no guidelines. And the second, second one is resources. Right? They, well, no, the, the resources, I think, was more of an argument in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when crime rates were rising. Now, since uh, 1996 uh, until the last two years, they went steadily down. Uh, so the resource argument, I think, is is uh, a little weaker. the the other But the other argument is the one that originally led to the guidelines, which is disparities between individual judges. Um, there's no question. There, when before the guidelines, there were judges who were uh, very Uh, quote, soft, and judges who are very tough, um, and they gave very different sentences for essentially the same crime. The problem is that that has not been eliminated by the guidelines. It's just become uh, disparities at the plea bargain stage rather than at the sentencing stage. So right now, you have prosecutors who are very soft, prosecutors who are very tough, and often in the very same office. There are also tremendous differences between offices. And uh, they will offer very different plea bargain deals. Uh, and th- so the same disparities exist, but no one knows it, because you can't see it out there in the open the way you can see a sentence on the public record.
2: I'd like to uh, just address the uh, need for snitches. Um, <laughs> You know, I I think it's it. I feel really horrible for the defense assistants. counsel. Always call them. snitches. I stiches. know, was like, like, said, until, as I witness. said, until
0: witnesses for the prosecution. Until yeah, yes, then, it's then when it's their own client, then it's
3: cooperating. Judge. Cooperators,
2: yes. <laughs> Recognize his responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're they're. I, I feel terrible that the uh, United States of America has to rely on snitches to make their case trial prosecution, every time. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely as, as sanguine about their veracity, their efficacy. These were guys who were willing to sell your children for heroin and what are the chances they're going to say something on the witness stand that pleases an assistant and gets them out of 20 years of prison because they truly believe in the American way. Um, and yet, A lot of people get convicted because they say, and sir, isn't it true that if you don't tell the truth on the stand, you will not get the benefit of that 5K1? Oh, yes, I would never lie. Um, Are they all liars? No. Are they all trustworthy? No. Is this a legal system that we want in this country? Uh, It's the one we've paid for with the sentencing guidelines. Uh,
3: I I have to disagree with you Uh, (laughs) because the use of cooperators goes way long before sentencing guidelines, long before mandatory minimums. There is, there's no question that it's an invitation to perjury. Um, So uh, the main uh, uh, ways to prevent that, and they're by no means perfect, uh, are two. One, of course, is cross-examination by uh, good defense counsel. And I do talk to juries after every case. Many, many times they will tell me uh, even where they convicted a defendant. We convicted him or her based on other evidence, not on the basis of the uh, cooperator because we didn't trust the cooperator. And that was because there was good cross-examination in those cases. But the other main... uh, um, guard against perjury is the prosecutors. This is, of course, a problem because it puts still another uh, power into the hands of prosecutors who, in my view, are already over-empowered. Um, but uh, most prosecutors do, in my experience, a pretty good job of not taking at face value whatever a uh, someone who wants a cooperation agreement uh, will say to them, but try to check it out with, uh, see if it it, uh, uh, is consistent with or contradictory to things that the cooperator doesn't know at all, things, pieces of evidence that were found in the crime scene that no one would know um, except the police, Uh, things that came from other witnesses uh, that uh, there's no way that they've been in touch with this potential cooperator and so, so forth. It doesn't always work, it's not perfect, But I think uh, many prosecutors do a pretty good job of uh, testing the veracity of cooperators before they put them on the stand.
0: How do we start... Restoring the jury uh, this is for Suja. How do we start c- coming back to the, if, we, if we the resources aren't going to be a problem? How do we start actually? Can we get to twenty percent? Uh, Clark asked, "Is over mark?" Can we go to one hundred percent? No jury trials. us <laughs> go all the way. Why not? And that three percent is holding on. How do we? How do we start pulling it back?
1: Yeah, I think there are a number of different things that we can do. I think fee um, bargaining itself is purely problematic. Um, whether someone is innocent um, or um, guilty, I think plea bargaining is problematic. Um, problematic to the point I, it
0: shouldn't exist? Yeah,
1: I don't think it should exist. Um, and, and I think that, you know, clearly that might sound like a radical statement, but I think we actually have to start having this conversation about what's problematic about plea bargaining. And if we think about the difference between what you're offered at the plea versus what you're offered if you're convicted before a jury, um, that is... Is not what um, our jury system was supposed to be. You you don't at that point really have a right to a jury. Um, you're you're being coerced to take um, the plea, um, and so um, I think that we need to continue to have this conversation about that. Um, so so that's one thing. But but one of the things I think. Um, that we need to do is, I think we need to make sure that everyone has the information that the prosecution has. I think that before you actually plead guilty, all of you know the prosecutor's um, information um, um, should be given, um, and that should be a condition of every plea bargain. Um, and so that's one of the uh, thoughts that I have. I have other thoughts, but I I'll so b- to the ban, ban
2: plea bargaining, Scott. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure every defendant would much rather do 30 years than 10. Um,
0: you know... if, okay, we were, so if you're not going to ban it, how do we reform Well, if
2: we were going to reinvent the system from the ground up, and then we're asked, we're going to ask ourselves the question, should there be plea bargain, maybe we could do that. But our system is a Rube Goldberg machine, where we keep adding new little pieces as if that's going to make the machine work better than it did before. And we can't add them, we can't take them away without realizing what the whole machine does. Um, Plea bargaining is is a safety valve. There's something called the safety valve, but it really doesn't apply to most human beings. Uh, Plea bargaining is what allows our system not to explode and to have basically, uh, you know, half of America in prison for the rest of its life, is that it gives defendants an option. And the pain of it is that it, whether or not you're, you're guilty, you're somewhat guilty, or even if you're completely innocent. The question is, at the end of the jury trial, do we feel vindicated in the uh, Justice Scalia sense of the Constitution doesn't protect innocence, it protects process? Are we okay with the fact that people are all going to be in prison forever because that's what the guidelines have taught our judges to do, um, as opposed to uh, give them an option that will somehow give them a little less time in prison, maybe a little more time out of prison, maybe a, an opportunity at a life. It's a sucky system. Plea bargaining is a terrible thing, except for not plea bargaining, which would be a disastrous thing. Judge?
3: So I'm midway between these two points of view. <laughs> uh, I think, in, and I've recommended without any success uh, that judges get involved in the plea bargaining process at a very early stage so that um, after someone is indicted um, the uh, uh, a judge different from the judge who's handling the case if it goes to trial in the it would be for example in the the uh, federal system would be a, a magistrate judge. Um, would meet f- with each side separately. Uh, it would be recorded to protect uh, all concern, but it would be sealed. Uh, and so neither the prosecutor nor the defense would be aware of what the other was saying to the judge. The prosecutor would lay out his evidence to the judge. The judge might say, you know, I wonder whether, whether you've looked at this I wonder whether you've turned over that uh, uh, exculpatory information. Um, uh, the judge would meet with the uh, defense counsel um, and say, uh, "Gee, um, uh, you know, it sounds like you haven't had an opportunity to explore X, Y, and Z yet. Don't you think you ought to do that?" Um, uh, and then the judge uh, might, if they, if the judge thought. The, it was an appropriate case for a plea bargain, uh, would say, you know, I would recommend. It would not be binding. No one would have to accept it. But I think the fact that it came from a judge would give it a certain force. And the and the judge would then recommend what he or she thought was an appropriate plea bargain. This system actually is in use in one state, in Connecticut. Uh, and it has been uh, very popular uh, with uh, both prosecutors, defense counsel, and judges in that state. So it wasn't an original thought on my part, but I, um, uh, w- that would be my hope for how to, to deal with this problem. Uh, I have one other modest suggestion, which I think is also unlikely to be adopted, but uh, what the heck, uh, <laughs> the, uh, which is that every prosecutor would have to serve Uh, six months of every three years as a defense counsel in another (laughs) district so there'd be no conflicts representing indigent defendants uh, in uh, in that other district. And that, I think, would make prosecutors who are mostly well-intentioned but very young, very inexperienced and never have seen the other side of the case, so to speak, give them a greater feel for how great (coughs) power that they are exercising is and how it needs to be tempered with uh, other considerations uh, than simply getting the highest sentence possible. And um, I I took the the liberty of suggesting that many, many, many years ago to then Attorney General Edward Levy, a very great man who was uh, Attorney General after Watergate appointed by... Uh, President Ford really cleaned up the Justice Department uh, in the in the aftermath of Watergate, and um, he listened politely and he said, "You know, that's not a bad idea, not a wholly bad idea." <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, <laughs> pulled back,
0: uh, but now that I'm a judge, I can say. <laughs> so if we if we did the, I, I I don't know many stories, just to my own anecdotal. A lot of prosecutors will become defense attorneys. I don't many defense attorneys who become prosecutors. Uh, that 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 seems because they see the other side. They don't want to get involved
2: and in, in throwing the book at people. That's not why prosecutors become defense lawyers. Well, no, I just
0: mean in terms of like, what, what being a defense attorney changes about your view of the world, would you go back to be, a, would you become a prosecutor afterwards?
2: I can't answer, I never put yeah, anybody but, in jail, so.
0: Okay. I'm not so sure, you were both.
3: There, there are, there, in the U- U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, the Chief of the Criminal Division is typically someone who had been first a prosecutor then a defense counsel, and now comes back uh, to serve as chief of the criminal division, um, and often for for the is selected for that very reason because he or she will have that kind of balanced view that only comes from from seeing both sides of the coin. Um, the uh, so yeah, I think that could be. Uh, uh, there's there's a view out there that. Um, w- We we should favor career prosecutors because there's dangers in the so-called revolving door and all like that. I'm not saying there's no truth to that, but I do think there's a lot to be said from having seen a situation from both sides.
0: When we talk about prosecutor behavior, um, we've seen Eric Holder had, uh, Attorney General Eric Holder had recommended moderate sentencing, uh, moderate charging uh, for the DOJ, which received a lot of pushback from AUSAs and DEA and former attorney generals. It, it, it doesn't seem like the, a lot of those who work in the DOJ want to be, quote-unquote, hamstrung, we were talking like, by... You know, things like James Madison's constitution, which often hamstrings their, you know, hamstrings, I just stole this line from Judge Rakoff, uh, hamstrings their ability to prosecute people fully. But they, they don't seem to like it when you tell them that they, they have to be moderate. And then Sessions comes in and says, you don't have to do that anymore. And I had heard some AUSA saying basically it was like having, coming out of a, ca- a cave, it was like suddenly being released to the wild and being able to do your job as soon as Jeff Sessions. So any commentary on, the, on those kind of behaviors with the DOJ? No.
3: <laughs> um, no I'll, I'll, that's an awkward question.
2: It's an awkward uh, question for you, uh, The The,
3: the um, main opposition to those moves uh, by um, uh, Mr. Holder came uh, on the basis of we need cooperators and this will make it harder for us to get cooperators. So I think it was sort of what we discussed so, before. Um, the... the um, but, you know, there's another aspect of this. Um, we have an adversary system. There are a lot, lot of good things to be said about having an adversary system, but there are some drawbacks, too. In most <laughs> countries of the world, they don't have an adversary system. And um, the, one of the drawbacks of is when you put all your psychological and emotional energies into taking a particular position, it's very hard to see that there's anything to be said for the other side. Um, it, it, uh, and, and that's why I, I think it's so unfortunate that sentencing power in effect has moved to the prosecutors. It's not that they're you know, evil people or anything like that. Uh, they're very well intentioned, but they only see one side of the coin. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and you, uh, if you talk to any prosecutor who has become a defense lawyer, Uh, they will tell you how their eyes were opened. By the way, they, of course, after about 10 years of being defense counsel, no longer see uh, any prosecutor prosecutor as being fair. fair. So so this all comes, in my view, from the adversary system. You get so involved. You put so much energy into one point of view that it becomes your own point of view, and you you can't be as detached as you would like.
2: You know, this is where... uh, Suja's point about you know, the, the absence of the trial really comes into play, which is that the dynamic here is you offer me a good plea or we go to trial and I kick your butt. And that's the, uh, that's the leverage that us defense lawyers have. We're going to make motions. We're going to go to hearings. We're going to challenge the law. We're going to go to trial. We're going to win. And the prosecutor sits there and says, Uh, what are the chances I'm going to be the only guy in the Southern District to lose a case this year? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that's where our leverage is. But if we don't try the case, then basically you're a prosecutor saying, let's see, I can offer you 10 years or 15 years. And if you don't like it, what are you going to do about it? The question is, do we have a way to fight back? And the answer is, yeah, trial. That's all there is. And so that's where the cost on the back end, where I say to my client, hey, look, we've got a triable case. You're a clean defendant. You can get up there and testify. We've got some evidence. They've got some holes. Let's take this case to trial. And he's looking at a cost of going to trial should he lose of an additional 20 years. He's got a very hard decision. And if I don't have that trial, I have no leverage with the prosecutor. They get tired of hearing the sad stories about how my client's a really good guy and his kids are adorable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I'm going to open it up uh, for questions. Uh, if you uh, coming, you guys can come right down. Right um, and actually, right here in the back, uh, if you're mm, good.
1: Thank you. Um, thinking about the plea bargaining as the safety valve uh, of the system. Um, just thought of court to me. so if if the if plea bargaining was restrained or restricted to some extent, you know, I, I understand it's very difficult for it to go away. But will the self safety valve then come earlier in the process with better, case screening by prosecutors, uh, more alternatives like uh, pretrial diversion uh, uh, alternatives, and therefore fewer people actually going to prison because fewer people will be actually going to trial and therefore being sentenced for, you know, the 30 years instead of the 10. So if, if – why can we make the safety valve come earlier and why do we wait so late to, to release?
2: Well, the answer is, is that we want to know for sure what the evidence is We want to know what the arguments are. We want to know what the case is. We don't want to essentially presume a defendant guilty upon accusation and forego any chance of defending, challenging violations of his constitutional rights. It takes time to learn everything there is about a case, to test everything that goes on. Um, The other alternative, we could do it right away if we just simply give up on the entire constitutional process otherwise. So... It's not just the prosecutor. The prosecutor could disclose everything to us on day one, although, you know, it's, it doesn't, you get 682 bankers' boxes of documents,
0: <laughs> you know, it,
2: it takes a day or two to read through them. <laughs> um, but even so, there's, the, there's really a great deal more being done. We kind of gloss over the whole process of making motions, holding hearings, uh, investigating, speaking with witnesses, meeting with our clients there really is a lot to know and to do if you're really going to represent defendants to do the right job to make sure they get every benefit of effective assistance of counsel they're entitled to under the Constitution.
3: Uh, A related aspect of this is uh, uh, money. Uh, So it's one thing uh, uh, if you are a uh, white-collar defendant and uh, maybe the co- your company you work for is under their bylaws paying your attorneys' fees. Um, there was uh, a famous case involving uh, handed down by one of my colleagues, Judge Kaplan, called the Stein case, in which he estimated that uh, a proper defense of a uh, substantial white-collar case uh, by good counsel would cost each defendant twenty million dollars. Uh, Even wealthy people don't have necessarily $20 million uh, to pay to their lawyers. But at the other extreme, a very serious problem is that while under the Constitution, every state has to provide uh, uh, criminal defendants with a lawyer, uh, the, the, the states often nickel and dime those lawyers, with several results. One is uh, the lawyer has 40 cases simultaneously. Can't do remotely what was just described uh, in that situation. Or, and or, um, the lawyer uh, can hire an investigator. There's no money for that. Or uh, can hire an expert. For example, forensic science, there's a lot of material out there now that suggests that much of forensic science is shaky, uh, but there's no money available in many states to hire an expert to rebut their forensic science. So in many, many respects, uh, the money aspect of this is also a big part of the problem. Do you have anything
0: here in front of you?
4: Yeah, uh, my name is Stephen Keat. Um, My question is directed at Scott Greenfield, but I would welcome um, anyone else having comments on it. Uh, you were defending plea bargaining uh, we live in a society where at least most I would assume many of the people in this room would argue there's too many things which are made illegal so if we were to go and eliminate plea bargaining wouldn't that force us to look at issues like you know our drug laws and all the various other laws that challenge us on a constant basis where It's very difficult to walk across the street without committing a crime. Wouldn't it force the system to cut down on the number of things which are illegal and to concentrate on things like murder, robbery, the other things that most of us would probably say, yes, we want the courts to deal with?
2: I think you're right. It would. And I think during the 10 to 50 years it would take for us to fill that mission, there would be hundreds of thousands of human lives destroyed as a process. One of the things we do as defense lawyers is represent individuals, one defendant at a time. We don't represent causes. We don't represent their mothers, their kids, society, justice. We represent one individual. And during the period between we get rid of uh, plea bargaining and we create a system that finally works without it, All of those lives are lost. And to be honest with you, I'm not antagonistic to a a system that works wonderfully for society. And I wouldn't be against recreating the system from the ground up so that it was much better than it is and we could implement it on Wednesday at 1 (laughs) o'clock. But any change to this Rube Goldberg machine is going to cost lives. And we care about them. We save lives one at a time. That's all we can do. And if you ask me, will I not acquiesce to giving up a few lives for the good of society? The answer is no, I won't give you a single life. I will fight for every one of them.
1: I think just one thing though, that I think if we did get rid of plea bargaining in my world, I think that prosecutors would actually start charging differently. Um, And as a result, I don't think uh, the states uh, or the federal government want to spend the money to be throwing even more people in prison. Um, and so I think charging would would change. So,
0: one question I forgot to ask Have any of you been on a jury? They, no? They, you have? You, uh, well, it, it, the
3: well, case, you. it was a civil, judges are eligible to serve on juries. And, of course. You just um, rarely get chosen. Uh, <laughs> yes, no sensible attorney would allow us that. It's like <laughs> that, 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 a magician the, having other magicians. But anyway, about, but you you I, I did that. sit on, but it was, it was a. Uh, a civil uh, personal injury case uh, in Westchester County, which my colleague so maligned, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, and uh, but it settled after two days, uh, so we right. didn't have to. It, I didn't really get to see the dynamics of of the decision
2: making. Uh, Trevor, I notice you keep picking from the right of the room. Is there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, I'll go left, I'll go left
1: next time. But, uh, that there is an imbalance between, uh, in judiciary. Like majority of the judges, they are former prosecutors and very little uh, defense attorneys become judges. So do you see uh, what is the reason for that? Are there like objective or subjective reasons for that? And also uh, those judges who are former prosecutors, don't you think that they're a little bit biased and they still think like prosecutors?
3: So um, the answer to why uh, prosecutors get chosen as judges and defense counsel do not is something called p- politics. You may have heard <laughs> of it. Uh, <laughs> Who you know? <laughs> and well, the, so uh, uh, federal judges uh, are initially recommended by the senior senator in their state unless the president's of a different party but if it's of the same party, then is vetted by the uh, White House, who then formally nominates the judge, then has to go through the Senate, which oftentimes is in different hands than the, than the party in power. Um, uh, it's, no one's going to be critical uh, of someone who has uh, prosecuted bad guys and can say, Um, You know, um, I'm going to uphold the law as a judge because I spent my life uh, sending those bad guys to jail. Uh, If, by contrast, you're someone who has represented uh, a notorious uh, crook, um, there's going to be a lot of questions raised, and those questions will ultimately be because of political fallout that the senators and the president and the one nominating you and all like that, uh, have in the back of their mind, can I be criticized for having supported uh, uh, this guy who represented the mafia uh, hitman? And when he, before he went on the bench, um, so the statistics are overwhelming um, uh, uh, of the uh, federal judges who had prior criminal experience. Some only had pure civil experience previously. Of the uh, Ones who had criminal experience, something like ninety-eight uh, percent were only prosecutors, uh, and the other two percent um, were uh, prosecutors who then had, as I did, defense experience and zero percent pure
0: defense counsel. Oh, so Scott's defense not going to be on the uh, federal bench time? The so? Senate has not
2: confirmed me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> what about Bi- does that does that? I mean, I feel like. Does that, do you see bias in judges, would you say?
2: Or is that, is, am I asking it's, you this? I, 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 know. I can't say that because a judge was formerly a prosecutor, that means he's necessarily biased. Some absolutely great judges were prosecutors, and some really bad judges had defense experience. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I'm, I'm happier with a prosecutor than I am with a judge who's never had any criminal law experience. I had one judge who declared uh, during a, uh, a Miranda hearing that the entire dialect of Mandarin didn't exist. Um, <laughs> he said, you have the interpreter read the uh, Miranda warnings in, in uh, Mandarin and another dialect. He listened to him. Then he said, sound the same to me. <laughs>
1: I'll, I'll add that, like, I think um, where we may see some problems is if you go over to the civil system... Um, and you have this choice. Um, you know, it's an incredibly elite group of people who become um, U.S. you know, prosecutors. And it's a certain set of people. And when you then have judges deciding other types of cases, like on summary judgment, and civil cases, then I think that becomes very problematic.
3: There's another aspect of this. Um, I actually do think that um, most judges do lean, maybe not consciously, but... Uh, do lean somewhat in the favor of the prosecution. Um, but uh, putting that aside, um, uh, in the, the, I think it's 37 states where judges are elected, uh, so not appointed, uh, whatever their feelings or uh, uh, predispositions may be, uh, come uh, a year or two before the election, they're going to start becoming more pro prosecution there are a lot of studies that bear this out the sentences of elected judges uh, uh, typically rise uh, about 20 to 25 percent in the year or two before their re-election um, because again it's a it's a political issue
0: I'm time for one more here on the left side uh, in the blue shirt there uh, she <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: Thanks. I don't know if that means I'm on the left or the right of the political spectrum, but I'll leave that alone. Uh, my name's Elaine Middleman. I take cases um, under the Criminal Justice Act on appeal. And Scott has the most fabulous blog. People should read it. It's, he's very dedicated, and you can his passion comes through in his blog. And he also knows what he's talking about. Those are not exclusive. Any, anyway... <laughs> um, I just wanna make one quick point on the sentencing guidelines, even though they're discretionary, the litigation and the judge's work and the pre-sentence report and on and on and on, still all revolves around the uh, sentencing guidelines and calculating them. So everyone still is focused on that. So I, I think that may be one thing that... And then the judges seem to have some comfort that, oh, well, they must be scientific or whatever. So even though they're supposedly discretionary, they're still there, so I don't I don't know how. But my, my main question was when the Supreme Court realized suddenly that there were plea bargains, and it, it seems like, th- to me, the judges maybe should, in, since there's no trials, put more effort into the plea bargain process. Because on appeal, I'll be reading the record, I'm like, well, was there a plea offer or wasn't there a plea offer? And, you know, either you don't know or you get five different versions of what was told to who. And I, I think it would be very helpful because, you know, six years later the defendant could say, well, I would have taken the plea if my attorney only told me about it. So I, it seems like it would be really helpful if the judge could, at whatever process, have on the record was their plea offer and be sure that the defendant knows what the effect is of taking the plea or not taking the plea and, and not leave that up to some, you know, backroom negotiating.
3: Close out the panel? Uh, well, just very briefly, uh, some of that is done now, but uh, I totally agree with you. A lot more can be done. When I've suggested this to other judges, um, basically the, the reaction has been, gee, that's not our job. What goes on between the two adversaries, that's between them. I should be removed from that process. I think that's an ostrich-like approach, and I don't agree with it at all, but that is, uh, for better or worse, the attitude of a great many judges. Any, any other questions? Far-
2: yeah, you know, we have an ethical responsibility, obviously, to communicate the plea offer and to advise the clients. But of course, you know, we're doing that in the uh, in the attorney room. We're in our office, and there are no judges or prosecutors around to say that. The other side of that is, after a defendant has, has made a decision, gone to trial, lost things tend to be a little more clear about what a good deal the plea bargain was. (laughs) Um, You know, to establish, it would be nice to have a means by which uh, prior to going to trial, the defendants led through a litany that he understands the rights, that this has happened, uh, and that he understands when going to trial uh, what he's facing. Um, Just to have it on the record, that it's not a matter of uh, you know a twenty-two fifty-five with us swearing uh, swearing out affidavits on behalf of the prosecutor, um, just so we know that the lawyer's done his job. Because as much as defense lawyers are wonderful, there is what, what, what was it the uh, the policeman said a little earlier today, a bad apple here and there. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, <laughs> we, we have them too, um, and it would be. Nice to know that there's some way to be certain that defendants were given all of their rights by their lawyer.
0: Join me in thanking our panel.